Should Christians Observe the Dietary Laws? A while back, Dr. Michael Brown gave his answer to this question in a short YouTube video. I highly respect Dr. Michael Brown. He's a solid theologian and Christian apologist, but I do differ with him on this issue. So I want to engage with his arguments that he gave in that video and offer a response. Like most evangelical Christians, Dr. Michael Brown takes the position that God's dietary laws are not binding on Christians today. He says that Christians are free to keep God's commandments about what not to eat, but he doesn't believe that we must keep them. What about the dietary laws? God must have given them to Israel for good reason. Why don't we keep them today? Hey, you're absolutely free to keep them. You're 100% free to keep the dietary laws. The question is, must you, in particular as a Gentile believer, must you? The answer to that is no. Before I get to his arguments, I do think it's worth mentioning that Dr. Brown apparently agrees that Mark 7 and Acts 10 do not teach that God's dietary laws have been done away with. That's significant, I think, because these passages are the two most common proof texts that many use to support the idea that God's dietary laws are irrelevant for Christians. Dr. Brown does believe Christians aren't required to keep these laws, but not on the basis of those two passages. Regarding Mark 7, Dr. Brown writes, there is no evidence that the disciples of Jesus heard these words and threw out the dietary laws. Rather, they grasped the meaning of Jesus' words and continued to live as Torah-observant Jews. Regarding Acts 10, he writes, quote, Now this has often been interpreted as a divine command for Peter to eat trafe, i.e. unclean food. But the text says nothing of the kind. Rather, as Peter was soon to understand upon receiving the invitation to accept the invitation of Cornelius and actually go into this Gentile man's house, God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. It's refreshing to see an evangelical theologian like Dr. Brown acknowledge the weakness in appealing to those two passages to support the idea that Yeshua did away with the dietary laws. By the way, for more on how to read those passages from a pro-Torah perspective, check out the links in the description. But let's get into Dr. Brown's arguments. Did God permit Noah to eat unclean animals? Dr. Brown begins by pointing out a statement from God to Noah in which God seemingly gives Noah permission to eat unclean animals after the flood. Here's what he says. What we do know is that in Genesis 9, God says every living thing, every, every earthly creature, you can eat. So he did not establish dietary laws at the foundation there in Genesis 9 after the flood. Dr. Brown makes this point to draw a distinction between universal laws for all believers and laws that, in his mind, were given only to Israel, as he goes on to argue. We'll address the argument that the dietary laws are not binding on Gentile believers a little later. But for now, let's focus on the verse in question. Did God permit eating unclean animals in Genesis 9-3? Well, it's worth noting that scholars have differing views on the meaning of the Hebrew word remez, often translated every living thing, in Genesis 9-3. While some hold that remez in that verse would include unclean animals, 
Others hold that it is limited to only animals permitted by God's dietary laws. It seems reasonable that there were limits to the types of living things that God permitted for food when you consider how Noah had already been instructed to make distinctions between clean and unclean animals in Genesis 7. Noah took seven pairs of clean animals and only one pair of unclean animals onto the ark. Now, Dr. Brown acknowledges this point, but he suggests that the purpose of making those distinctions in Genesis 7 was only with regard to sacrifices. However, it seems that these distinctions also would apply to what Noah would have been allowed to eat. The next verse applies limits to remez by prohibiting the eating of blood. Furthermore, not all Christian commentators view Genesis 9-3 as a strong case for permitting the eating of unclean animals. For instance, Christian scholar Gordon Winham says this, whether this permission to eat meat meant that Noah could eat unclean as well as clean creatures is uncertain. The silence of the text on this issue is usually taken to mean that he was not restricted to just clean creatures. However, the frequent mention of the difference between clean and unclean animals elsewhere in the story makes it problematic to assert that total freedom is being given here. In other words, since clean and unclean animals are already distinguished elsewhere in the narrative as we mentioned, the statement in Genesis 9-3 is qualified in light of that context. In his commentary on Genesis, Hebrew scholar Dr. John Walton gives some additional considerations concerning the Hebrew word remez, which is translated as every moving thing. Here's what he says. The noun and the associated verb each occur 17 times in the Old Testament, 10 times each in Genesis 1 through 9. This word group is distinct from both the wild beasts and domesticated flocks and herds. Neither verb nor noun is ever used to refer to larger wild animals or to domesticated animals. In no place is remez a catch-all category for all creatures. It is one category of creature only. The division of the Hebrew terms used up to this point in Genesis reflects the nature of the animal. Since remez does not indicate literally every living thing, it therefore is not necessary to interpret every moving thing in Genesis 9-3 as including unclean animals. Walton later goes on to list the types of animals that fall into this remez category. Here's what he says. The most common members of this group were wild cattle, antelope, follow deer, gazelle, and ibex. Remarkably, the animals that Walton lists as being included in this category of animals are all designated as clean according to the Torah. But in any case, we don't have to question which animals are permitted for us to eat since scripture clearly defines them for us in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. The question is, do these laws apply to all believers? Were God's dietary laws given only to Israel? Dr. Brown's second argument is that the dietary laws given in the Torah were never given to non-Israelites. Here's what he says. 
And then when he gave the dietary laws to Israel in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, he never said they were for all the nations. No, like I, I live, my own eating habits, I live by them, but that's, that's not the issue, whether it's good or bad or healthy or not. Simply that God didn't give them to all the nations. You never see in the Old Testament where God ever judges a foreign nation for not keeping the dietary laws, whereas he does judge them for their sins against one another, for breaking covenants and acts of inhumanity and things like that that. While Dr. Brown is correct that we never see God judge a foreign nation for that particular sin, that doesn't mean that God is okay with people who call upon his name breaking his dietary laws. Just because the Bible never gives the breaking of dietary laws as a reason for God judging a foreign nation, doesn't mean that these laws aren't important. But there are a couple of other points worth mentioning. For instance, in Isaiah 66:17, we do see a warning that those, quote, eating swine's flesh will be consumed in God's wrath. This judgment will be against, quote, all flesh, that is, all mankind. Moreover, as Barry G. Webb suggests, quote, the judgment is on the heathen and on those, including apostate Jews, who have become like them. So it appears that God's judgment for breaking his dietary laws might, indeed, extend beyond Israel. Finally, this passage in Isaiah, according to many scholars, has a futuristic setting in view, perhaps connected to the second coming of Messiah. Clearly, eating unclean animals is not a light matter from Isaiah's perspective. Regardless of that, though, why would we look at how foreign nations are judged to see how God wants us to live? Foreign nations are not our example of righteous living for God's glory. On the contrary, Israel was to be the example to the nations. Deuteronomy 4, 5-8. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Israel was to keep God's laws to show the nations how great God is and how righteous his laws are. And when the people from the nations chose to join the community of Israel and follow the God of Israel, they too were expected to live by God's laws, including the dietary laws. In fact, one verse in the Torah that can easily be missed explicitly states that both Israelites and the strangers, that is, non-native Israelites, are instructed to hunt only clean animals. Leviticus 17.13 Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. In his book, Messianic Kosher Helper, scholar John K. McKee points out something significant about this verse. Here's what he says. The clause, asher ye akel, is rightfully concluded to mean, as some dynamic equivalency versions have put it, quote, 
is approved for eating, quote, which is ritually clean, or Hartley's rendering, quote, that is lawful to eat. R.K. Harrison notes these animals to be, quote, the blood of clean game caught in the hunt. That the ger or sojourner within the community of ancient Israel was anticipated to observe the kosher dietary laws along with the native is definitely detectable. It would not make any logical sense for the ger or sojourner to only be limited to eating permitted clean animals caught in the wild but not have the same prohibition for domesticated animals. Right here is a clear indication that the dietary laws were not given to Israel exclusively. The stranger from the nations who chooses to sojourn with Israel was also expected to live by God's dietary laws. Why would we think it would be any different today? Whether Jew or Gentile, if we want to follow the God of Israel, we should follow his rules. What about in the New Testament? So in the Old Testament, it seems clear that God's people were to keep the dietary instructions. But what about in the New Testament? Did something change? Dr. Brown makes his third argument based on the assumption that something did. Here's what he says. There's not a single verse anywhere in the New Testament that says the dietary laws are mandatory for all believers, including Gentile believers, not a syllable. So I'd actually argue here that Dr. Brown's argument is an argument from silence, but silence gives us no premise for a valid conclusion here. Just because a commandment isn't explicitly reiterated in the New Testament doesn't necessarily mean that God doesn't want us to keep it. The New Testament doesn't reiterate many commandments found in the Torah, such as don't practice necromancy or don't practice bestiality. Yet Christians still believe that we should keep those commandments even though they're not reiterated in the New Testament. So while it's true that the dietary laws aren't explicitly reiterated in the New Testament, they are implicitly reiterated in the New Testament, including for Gentiles. For instance, um, Yeshua instructed his disciples to make disciples of all the nations and to teach them all that he had commanded them in Matthew 28. All that he commanded them certainly would have included the dietary laws since they are part of the Torah that Yeshua affirmed as having ongoing authority in Matthew 5, 17-20. For more on that passage, by the way, see the link to the video in the description. But um, another point here is that Paul said that all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness in 2 Timothy 3.16. And certainly all scripture would include the dietary laws. Finally, Peter, who remained observant of God's dietary instructions long after Yeshua's resurrection, as Dr. Brown agrees, he instructs Christians to, quote, be holy, and he appeals to the Torah as the basis for this imperative. Interestingly, the Torah defines being holy as including the observance of God's dietary laws. In conclusion, I don't see any biblical basis for ignoring God's dietary laws. Again, I highly respect Dr. Michael Brown's scholarship, but 
I do believe that he's wrong on this topic, and I would encourage him to revisit it. Dr. Brown does amazing work, and I greatly appreciate his uncompromising stance for biblical marriage and against LGBTQ activism. Although he is 100% right in his position on those issues, his arguments, I think, are weakened when he affirms the validity of some of God's commandments, but denies the validity of others, like the dietary laws. So that's my response. I hope you guys liked it.